friends, welcome to episode 9 of Ents and Sensibility, the podcast for everyone who loves bold, witty women, awkward, handsome men, and dragons. Well, it's been a long time since we last met, and we have a lot of things to cover, so let's get to it. In Austin News Today, Sanditon is back. Last episode, we talked with Amanda Ray Prescott on a wide range of topics, but we really focused on race and racism in the Austin communities. We talked a lot about Sanditon, not knowing at the time if Sanditon would ever return to the TV screen. Well, good news everyone, Sanditon will return for season two and season three. After months and years of campaigning on social media from the hashtag Sanditon Sisterhood, it appears the main reason for the show's renewal is the success of fellow Regency-era romance Briggerton. Season one of Sanditon ended with a massive cliffhanger as Sidney married his old flame, Charlotte was leaving Sanditon, and young Stringer decided against leaving Sanditon after his father died. News broke May 6th when Masterpiece and Red Planet Pictures announced the renewal. Deadline reported at the time that the show's success on PBS's Masterpiece had paved the way for a two-season renewal order. PBS is bringing it back for season two and season three. BritBox, the streaming service run by ITV and the BBC, will be the initial UK partner rather than the linear broadcast which had second season rights. Rose Williams will return to play the high-spirited and independent Charlotte Haywood. Unfortunately, the show is going to go on without Sydney. Theo James announced that he would not return for season two. He said, Although I relished playing Sydney, for me, I've always maintained that his journey concluded as I wanted it to. The broken fairy tale-like ending between Charlotte and Sydney is different, unique, and so interesting to me, and I wish the cast and crew of Sanditon every success with future series. So it looks like Charlotte's going to have to find another love interest. Personally, I stand young Stringer. I'm also hoping that the writers give Crystal Clark's Georgiana Lamb a good story after a disappointing season one. Jane Austen's House Museum is facing criticism after announcing plans that it would refresh some of its displays and decorations. But it says that its plans do not amount to, quote, woke madness or revisionist history of which it has been accused. The museum had announced plans in late March to refresh some of these displays within the house to reflect the world and times in which Jane Austen lived. This includes the transatlantic slave trade. Jane's father, George, was a trustee of a sugar plantation in Antigua, and nearly 25 years after Jane died, her brother Henry was sent as a delegate to the World Anti-Slavery Convention in 1840. So the family had some connections. The museum has decided to include displays and information about these timely and related events and issues, and they stated on Twitter, we are increasingly asked questions about this by our visitors, and it is therefore appropriate that we share the information and research that already exists on her connections to slavery and its mentions in her novels. We would like to offer reassurance that we will not, and have never had any intention to, interrogate Jane Austen, her characters, or her readers for drinking tea. Personally, I think it's interesting to learn more about the world in which Jane lived. Her life and her family members were affected by what happened across the world. 
So I'm going to save my pennies so that when I get back to England someday, I'll be able to visit the museum. But what are your thoughts on this and what do you think of the coverage? There's been plenty of coverage in the British tabloids and the New York Times picked up the story in April, but I'd like to know what you think. In other news, there will be two competing versions of persuasions. Dakota Johnson of Fifty Shades fame, Cosmo Jarvis of Lady Macbeth, and crazy rich Asians hunk Henry Golding will star in Netflix's version of Jane's final completed novel. This version has been described as a modern and witty approach, but it is still a period drama, so I'm excited about that. Netflix's version will compete with Searchlight Pictures Persuasions starring Sarah Snook, who played Shiv Roy on HBO's drama Succession as Anne Elliot, and Joel Fry, who played the infamous Hisdar Zoe Lorak in Game of Thrones as Captain Wentworth. So I suppose fans will have to choose their favorite persuasions based on their preferred Anne and Wentworth, just like we choose our favorite Pride and Prejudice based on our favorite Elizabeth and Darcy. Finally, scientists working aptly at the University of Texas at Austin have used a molecular data storage technique to encode a quote from Mansfield Park. The quote from chapter 5 reads, If one scheme of happiness fails, human nature turns to another. If the first calculation is wrong, we make a second better. We find comfort somewhere. According to the team, the words can be read back without prior knowledge of the structures that encode the passage. You can read more on the encoding technique in Cell Reports Physical Science. That's all for Austin News Today. And now to today's reading. In our last episode, Marianne couldn't comprehend why someone as old and ill as Colonel Brandon could possibly be in love with her. And he must be old and ill since he complains of aches and wears a flannel waistcoat. But she was far more concerned about Eleanor. It had been weeks since they moved and there was no word about Edward visiting them. Eleanor, however, appears indifferent and Marianne can't grasp her sister's self-control. Chapter 9 finds the Dashwood women making their new home their own. The house and the garden with all the objects surrounding them, were now become familiar, and the ordinary pursuits which had given to Norland half its charms were engaged in again with far greater enjoyment than Norland had been able to offer since the loss of their father. Sir John Middleton, who called on them every day for the first fortnight, and who was not in the habit of seeing much occupation at home, could not conceal his amazement on finding them always employed. So the Dashwoods are always doing something. As we discussed before, Eleanor paints and Marianne plays piano, so they're obviously busy with those. But they also ha likely have a lot to do around the cottage. They would also do a lot of sewing, making dresses and bonnets, and a lot of other items, including embroidery. They would read novels, especially Marianne. But they would also enjoy the outdoors. Again, especially Marianne, who shares my love of trees, loves nature, and would explore the nearby countryside around Barton. Now, part of the reason that they're staying at home is because Mrs. D doesn't want to borrow Sir John's carriage in order to widen their social circle and visit more distant families. And there aren't that many families close enough for a walk. There were but few who could be so classed, and it was not all of them that were attainable. 
about a mile and a half from the cottage along the narrow winding valley of Allenham, which issued from that of Barton, as formerly described, the girls had, in one of their earliest walks, discovered an ancient, respectable-looking mansion which, by reminding them a little of Norland, interested their imagination and made them wish to be better acquainted with it. But they learnt on inquiry that its possessor, an elderly lady of very good character, was unfortunately too infirm to mix with the world and never stirred from home. Since this limits the number of people the girl can visit, they spend a lot of times at home or outdoors. The whole country about them abounded in beautiful walks. The high downs which invited them from almost every window of the cottage to seek the exquisite enjoyment of air on their summits were a happy alternative when the dirt of the valleys beneath shut up their superior beauties. And towards one of these hills did Marianne and Margaret one memorable morning direct their steps. Attracted by the partial sunshine of a showery sky, and unable longer to bear the confinement which the settled rain of the two preceding days had occasioned. The weather was not tempting enough to draw the two others from their pencil and their book, in spite of Marianne's declaration that the day would be lastingly fair, and that every threatening cloud would be drawn off from their hills, and the two girls set off together. So this has been the weather in my neck of the woods for weeks. It's been rainy days with occasional sunshine. And of course, now that it's June, it's just hot all the time. And I know I shouldn't complain compared to what Florida or what California in the West are dealing with, but it's still wicked hot. I wish I had downs to walk across. Margaret and Marianne have been cooped up for two days because of the rain, and we know Marianne by now. She must have been bored stiff, so of course she's going to risk getting caught in the rain, and she probably doesn't need to convince Margaret to go with her. Those high downs are finally appearing after probably being hidden by rain clouds, and they're calling to the girls. But of course, sensible Eleanor is not going to risk getting muddy, so she and Mrs. D stay home to draw and read. They gaily ascended the downs, rejoicing in their own penetration at any glimpse of blue sky, and when they caught in their faces the animating gales of a high southwesterly wind, they pitied the fears which had prevented their mother and Eleanor from sharing such delightful sensations. Southwesterly winds. Isn't that the way the rain comes in southern England? Is there a felicity in the world, said Marian, superior to this? Margaret, we will walk here at least two hours. Margaret agreed, and they pursued their way against the wind, resisting it with laughing delight for about twenty minutes longer, when suddenly the clouds united over their heads and a driving rain set full in their face. Chagrined and surprised, they were obliged, though unwilling, to turn back, for no shelter was nearer than their own house. One consolation, however, remained to them— to which the exigence of the moment gave more than usual propriety. It was that of running with all possible speed down the steep side of the hill, which led immediately to their garden gate. They set off. Marian had at first the advantage, but a false step brought her suddenly to the ground, and Margaret, unable to stop herself to assist, was involuntarily hurried along and reached the bottom safely. I'm going to stop here for a minute. Oh, Marianne. Your decision to go out has come back to bite you in the ankle. 
but they probably had the advantage of the rain here to run downhill. It wasn't proper for women or for girls to run because they might accidentally show their legs. And, you know, women shouldn't show their legs as I sit here in shorts and a tank top sweating. They basically had to pretend they didn't have legs, but they had the excuse of the rain to stretch out and to run here. The description of these peeps of blue sky amid the clouds, the steep hills, the southwesterly wind, it all conjures such an image. You can actually see these girls running helter-skelter down the hill in the wind and the rain and laughing as they go. But, of course, they're totally out of control. Marianne takes the false step. She falls. Margaret can't stop herself. She's running so fast that gravity has just taken her all the way to the front door. These paragraphs are so visual. You can see everything here. And I don't know if you could always see everything in Austin, but here it's visceral. A gentleman carrying a gun with two pointers playing around him was passing up the hill and within a few yards of Marianne when her accident happened. He put down his gun and ran to her assistance. She had raised herself from the ground, but her foot had been twisted in her fall and she was scarcely able to stand. The gentleman offered his services, and perceiving that her modesty declined what her situation rendered necessary, took her up in her arms without farther delay, and carried her down the hill. Then passing through the garden, the gate of which had been left open by Margaret, he bore her directly into the house where Margaret had just arrived, and quitted not his hold till he had seated her in a chair in the parlor. There it is. Your damsel in distress, saved by a handsome stranger who appears out of nowhere. It's so romantic. So this man is obviously a gentleman. He is dressed for hunting. He has two hunting dogs. And he's just what happens to be walking up the hill past Marianne when she falls. I wonder if she was checking him out when she fell. Anyways, he puts down the gun, runs to her help, and she can't stand up. But she also can't ask him for help. That would be too personal. That is beyond the bounds of propriety. Women and men didn't touch in public, especially strangers. That's one reason dancing was so important, because they could touch hands. So Marianne can't ask him to even help her, but this stranger literally sweeps her off her feet and carries her home. Eleanor and her mother rose up in amazement at their entrance, and while the eyes of both were fixed on him with an evident wonder and a secret admiration which equally sprung from his appearance, he apologized for his intrusion by relating its cause, in a manner so frank and so graceful that his person, which was uncommonly handsome, received additional charms from his voice and expression. Had he been even old, ugly, and vulgar, the gratitude and kindness of Mrs. Dashwood would have been secured by any act of attention to her child. But the influence of youth, beauty, and elegance gave an interest to the action which came home to her feelings. She thanked him again and again, and, with the sweetness of address which always attended her, invited him to be seated. But this he declined, as he was dirty and wet. Mrs. Dashwood then begged to know to whom she was obliged. His name, he replied, was Willoughby, and his present home was at Allenham, from whence he hoped she would allow him the honor of calling tomorrow to inquire after Miss Dashwood. The honor was readily granted, and he then departed, to make himself still more interesting in the midst of a heavy rain. 
He sweeps in from nowhere, rescues the fair maiden, and disappears again into the rain. This is so good. How could you not enjoy this? Even if it's a little trite after 200 years, it's still romantic. He's handsome, he's dashing, he's heroic, we think. There's no getting over this. So, I want to sidebar briefly here about Willoughby. In episode one, I talked about some of the influences on Sense and Sensibility, but we've kind of ignored them for the past eight chapters. I want to bring up some of the influences today because I've been looking into Willoughby, particularly his entrance. We've discussed the influences of Pamela, Sir Charles Grandison, Clarissa, Richardson, Cooper, and Radcliffe on the podcast, but we haven't looked at Francis Burney's Evelina or Charlotte Smith's Celestina. Both of these books have male characters named Willoughby. Burney's Sir Clement Willoughby is a baronet and one of Evelina's suitors, but he is this super aggressive creep and constantly pesters and propositions Evelina while she's in London. Now, truth be told, I haven't read this book yet, but it's on my very, very, very long list of books to read. Now, Charlotte Smith's George Willoughby is actually the hero of her sentimental novel and Celestina's beloved. Now, they do have a happily ever after in the end. So we have two very different Willoughby's, a sexual predator and a romantic hero of sensibility. So our Willoughby, or rather Marianne's Willoughby, is kind of a mix between these characters. Now, in my research on the topic, I found an essay in a volume of Persuasions Online, the Journal of the Jane Austen Society of North America. Now, this was published in volume 30, number two, spring of 2010. The essay is called What Happens at the Party? Jane Austen Converses with Charlotte Smith. And the author Jacqueline Labe says, Smith's Willoughby acts as a bridge between Sir Clement Willoughby, the rake in Evelina, and John Willoughby, whose mysterious transformation from lever in sensibility mode to selfish gold digger with a libertine past has disturbed many readers. Smith's George Willoughby begins and ends Celestina as a man of feeling but he spends much of the middle portion of the novel engaged to an heiress at the behest of his aunt, so that his estates may be disencumbered. Celestina voices the anxiety that Austin's characters come to feel. Willoughby, but no, it is impossible. He cannot be unworthy. He cannot have cruelly deceived me. It is impossible. She is reassured that it is indeed impossible for Mr. Willoughby to be guilty of any unworthy action. And so it proves, eventually. But Austin, by employing both her models, creates a Willoughby who is simultaneously a man of feeling and a desiring rake. Her contemporary readers, well-versed in their Bernie and their Smith, may thus have had a forewarning of Willoughby's unstable status, subsequently lost to later readers to whom Smith was not so much a closed as an unknown book. Spoiler, John Willoughby, that's Marianne's Willoughby, is a sexy romantic hero turned villain. Sorry to ruin the ending for you if you haven't read the book, but that's what's going to happen. Anyways, right now, we have this handsome, mysterious man who rescues our beautiful romantic heroine and has disappeared back into the rain. 
But the Dashwood women are not about to let this event drop. They have to talk about the babe, uh, man. His manly beauty and more than common gracefulness were instantly the theme of general admiration, and the laugh which his gallantry raised against Marianne received particular spirit from his exterior attractions. Marianne herself had seen less of his person than the rest, for the confusion which crimsoned over her face on his lifting her up had robbed her of the power of regarding him after their entering the house. But she had seen enough of him to join in all the admiration of the others, and with an energy which always adorned her praise. His person and air were equal to what her fancy had ever drawn for the hero of a favored story, and in his carrying her into the house with so little previous formality, there was a rapidity of thought which particularly recommended the action to her. Every circumstance belonging to him was interesting. His name was good, his residence in their favorite village, and she soon found out that of all manly dresses, a shooting jacket was the most becoming. Her imagination was busy, her reflections were pleasant, and the pain of a sprained ankle was disregarded. So this guy is hot, like super hot and super nice, and the girls can't stop talking about him. And they tease Marianne for being rescued by this romantic hero, just like from one of the books she loves so much. Of course, Marianne couldn't really see him much from his arms, and she was just too embarrassed to actually really look at him after he set her down. So I guess maybe she wasn't staring at him when she fell. So his circumstances, his looks, this whirlwind storybook romance all make him that much more interesting to Marianne. His relationship with the owner of the old mansion they see on the walks adds to her interest and within minutes, Marianne is over her ankle and she's ready to fall again. This time for Willoughby instead of in front of him. So Willoughby is the talk of Barton Cottage for the rest of the day, and lucky for them, Sir John comes to visit. Sir John called on them as soon as the next interval of fair weather that morning allowed him to get out of doors, and Marianne's accident being related to him, he was eagerly asked whether he knew any gentleman of the name of Willoughby at Allenham. Willoughby, cried Sir John, what, is he in the country? That is good news, however. I will ride over tomorrow and ask him to dinner on Thursday. You know him, then? said Mrs. Dashwood. Know him, to be sure I do. Why, he is down here every year. And what sort of young man is he? As good a kind of fellow as ever lived, I assure you. A very decent shot, and there is not a bolder rider in England. And is that all you can say for him? cried Marianne indignantly. But what of his manners on a more intimate acquaintance? What of his pursuits, his talents and genius? Sir John was rather puzzled. Upon my soul, he said, I do not know much about him as to all that. But he is a pleasant, good-humored fellow, and has got the nicest little black bitch of a pointer I ever saw. Was she out with him today? Of course Sir John is puzzled. Sir John just listed all the attributes he looks for in a man— Willoughby's a good rider, a good shot, and has a beautiful dog. The narrator tells us in chapter 7, he esteems only those of his sex who are sportsmen likewise. So a description that he just gave would probably be enough to promise his own daughter to a man. Marianne could no more satisfy him as to the color of Mr. Willoughby's pointer than he could describe to her the shades of his mind. 
But Marianne isn't satisfied, and neither are we. Then, of course, sensible Eleanor comes to the rescue with some questions Sir John actually can answer. But who is he, said Eleanor. Where does he come from? Has he a house at Allenham? Sir John can provide more information here. He says Willoughby is staying with a relative at Allenham Court, which he will one day inherit, Sir John assumes. And then he pulls a Mrs. Jennings and he teases Marianne. Yes, yes, he is very well worth catching, I can tell you, Miss Dashwood. He has a pretty little estate of his own in Somersetshire besides, and if I were you, I would not give him up to my younger sister. In spite of all this tumbling down hills, Miss Marianne must not expect to have all the men to herself. Brandon will be jealous if she does not take care. I do believe, said Mrs. Dashwood with a good-humoured smile, that Mr. Willoughby will be incommoded by the attempts of either of my daughters towards what you call catching him. It is not an employment to which they have been brought up. Men are very safe with us, let them be ever so rich. I am glad to find, however, from what you say, that he is a respectable young man, and one whose acquaintance will not be ineligible. Mrs. Dashwood is not Mrs. Bennet. She does not encourage her girls to chase men. Can you imagine Mrs. Bennet saying that? Well, she might say something like that, but she certainly wouldn't mean it. And no one who'd ever met her would believe her. She, Mrs. D is the anti-Mrs. Bennet. The Dashwood girls have not been raised to chase men. Now that doesn't mean that they're not in the marriage market. Finding a suitable husband for every young woman was serious business in Georgian England. Hell, it should be serious business now. But that doesn't mean Mrs. D isn't interested in what Sir John has to say about Willoughby. I am glad to find, however, from what you say, that he is a respectable young man and one whose acquaintance would not be ineligible. He is a good sort of fellow, I believe, as ever lived, repeated Sir John. I remember last Christmas at a little hop at the park. He danced from eight o'clock till four without once sitting down. Did he really? cried Marianne with sparkling eyes and with elegance, with spirits. Yes, he was up again at eight to ride to covert. That is what I like. That is what a young man ought to be. Whatever his pursuits, his eagerness in them should know no moderation and leave him no sense of fatigue. This is what Marianne wants to hear. She wants that man of feeling, a man with spirit who can stay up all night and be ready to go hunting the next morning. Basically, Marianne wants, or thinks she wants, a party boy. 17. Remember that age when the fun boys were so much more interesting than the studious ones? Here it is. Eleanor, in her subtle, restrained ways, is attracted to the studious guy while her sister wants the party boy. But Sir John sees right through Marianne. Aye, aye, I see how it will be, said Sir John. I see how it will be. You'll be setting your cap on him now and never think of poor Brandon. That is an expression, Sir John, said Marianne warmly, which I particularly dislike. I abhor every commonplace phrase by which wit is intended, and setting one's cap at a man or making a conquest are the most odious of all. Their tendency is gross and illiberal, and if their construction could ever be deemed clever, time has long ago destroyed all its ingenuity. Sir John did not much understand this reproof. But he laughed as heartily as if he did, and then replied, Aye, you will make conquests enough, I dare say, one way or another, 
Poor Brandon, he is quite smitten already, and he is very well worth setting your cap at, I can tell you, in spite of all this tumbling about and spraining of ankles. So Marianne has no sense of humor here. She reproaches Sir John for teasing her again. She really she really hates these cliches and these adages. She says they're trite and overused to the point that they've lost their uniqueness. And she's not wrong, but she's not very nice about it. But Sir John is just such a nice guy. He doesn't really understand what she's saying. And he thinks she's joking. Or maybe he's confused and he just laughs through his confusion. I mean, I do that. But he really does feel for Brandon, who is crushing hard on Marianne. And Sir John really does think highly of his friend, regardless of his ability to describe Willoughby and the fact that he likes everyone. Sir John is trying to describe Brandon's worth to her in the only way he's able to. He's well worth setting your cap at. He has far more than the ability to dance all night and hunt all day. Even though Sir John has little in common with Brandon, he does understand his worth as a potential husband. Well, this has been a busy episode, and I hope you've all enjoyed today's reading. I know I have. Next episode, we'll read Chapter 10 and learn more about how Willoughby fits Marianne's standard of the perfect man and how Eleanor begins to stand Brandon. That's all for today. Thank you for listening to Ensign Sensibility. Today's episode was written and edited by me, Casey Meserve, and produced by Jeremy Meserve. You can listen to all our episodes on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen. If you'd like to leave a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts, that would really help us out. You can also write to me at ensandsensibility at gmail and follow Ents and Sensibility on Facebook, Twitter, and on Instagram. If you'd like to purchase any of the books mentioned on the show, check out the bookshelf page on ensandsensibility.com. We also have show notes for every episode and much more. I hope you'll visit with me again soon.